I located them based upon where the patients were going to be. So hospitals want to be in nice locations. They want to be the ivory tower. They want to be the place that's a destination. But that's not where the patients live. You want to be where the patients are that's easy for the patient to get to. You know, has adequate public transportation, has a high density of patients. And so you may not want to be in a class A area. You don't also don't want to be in a war zone, although we put in clinics in war zones, but you know, you want to be in a B or C location and you want to have adequate parking. You have to approach it from the patient perspective. Where does the patient want to go? This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Trisha Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. The next two episodes of the podcast is with a guest, Gupreet Pada. He is a private practice physician out of St. Louis, Missouri, who runs Reversing Diabetes MD and Pada Institute Center for Interventional Pain Management. He also runs Red Pill Capital, which is a real estate investment development and management company. And he is an advocate for educating private practice physicians on passive wealth strategies through owning real estate. So welcome to Gupreet, and I look forward to the conversation. Gupreet, welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. So you are an excellent resource for many of my listeners because you're a private practice physician, and you're also a commercial real estate investor. So they can relate to your lessons learned and, and words of wisdom that you may have. Did I miss anything else that, that you do? I've done a little of every silly thing in the world. And so right now I'm 56 years old. I feel like I've done enough stupidity to fill a couple of books. <laughs> and so there's a thing, I mean, Mark Twain said this, you're never going to live long enough to make, your, to make all the mistakes. So you better learn from other people. And I've made enough mistakes that maybe somebody can learn from some of the silliness that I did. Oh, fun. Okay. So this would be, this would be a great conversation. So just to give everyone kind of a frame of reference. So you specialize in interventional pain management and diabetes treatment. Yeah. I'm, I'm boarded anesthesia. I'm boarded interventional pain. I'm boarded in addiction medicine and I'm certified for basically low carb nutritional health and, and reversing diabetes. So I'm triple boarded and then, but I specialize in an area it's an emerging area. It's about metabolic inflammation. So it's dealing with people who have very significant effects from our contemporary diet, our abnormal, and how that impacts our population. And that convergence is really metabolic inflammation. That's where obesity, that's where addiction and chronic opiate use for pain all collide. And that's where I believe the vast majority of our resource dollars are spent in the United States. It's about probably half to two thirds of our health budget and about 10 to 20% of our GDP. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree at all. 
based out of, and you're based out of St. Louis, Missouri, and you have the two private practices, the Pata Institute Center for Interventional Pain Management and Reverse Diabetes MD. Yeah, we've got probably seven or eight clinics. We've got two major practice lines, but we've got seven or eight clinics that we that we're in, but we've got two two major practice lines that we go down. And then on the invest real estate investment side, you have Red Pill Capital, and you you began your commercial real estate career at 14 before you uh, even started down the path of becoming a doctor. You know, I came from India when I was, I guess, eight or nine years old, and we lived in the hood. I lived in St. Louis City. I lived in the Cleed Town, which was really the ghetto back then, and we didn't have any money, so I had to hustle to figure out how to make money to get the things that I was interested in getting. You know, if I wanted something, I had to figure it out. And so it's really unusual to have a a little kid with a turban going door to door, selling greeting cards to people. Little does he know what Christmas is, selling Merry Christmas cards to people that you quickly find out are not going to be there when you're there to deliver their card, but you prepaid for it. So I learned from the school of hard knocks when I was very young. And then eventually by the time I was 14, I started to get into real estate. I started in construction and I, you know, ground up, learned construction, tenants, toilets, termites, the whole shebang. And by the time I was 16, I managed to hire people to work with me. And I hired people that had skills. And because I didn't, I, I was a kid and I, I, but I knew that I could, I figured out that I could save enough money to hire other people. And so I hired contractors to come work with me and they would drop me off at my high school in their trucks. And I would take phone calls in the cafeteria from them and they would tell me what their status on the project was at that moment. And so that's how I kept in contact with my contractors through high school is phone calls because we didn't have cell phones. We had landlines. Right. That's, that's crazy. Very resourceful. So did you immediately go into private practice when you did graduate from medical school? So I graduated from medical school. I went into residency in Chicago. I thought I was going to go into surgery. And it happened that the nursing strike of Chicago happened at the same time at Cook County Hospital when I was in surgery. And so for about six months, I didn't leave the hospital. And that's when it dawned on me that if I was going to have a life outside of this, I was going to have to figure something out outside of surgery. At the same time, I was still doing my real estate stuff and I was buying and selling property and I was still rehabbing. And that's hard to do when you're in a residency for general surgery. And so it dawned on me that I had to figure out a better way. So I went into anesthesia thinking, oh, I'm going to have more free time. And that wasn't the case. I ended up going into pediatric anesthesia, ended up doing heart, liver, lung transplants, and eventually got into interventional pain. So I did that. I was very academic for a good 10 or 12 years. I published a lot of papers, did a lot of research. In the process of doing the research, I realized I didn't, even though I knew the practical aspect of finances, I didn't have a good understanding of currency flow. I didn't understand macroeconomics. So I went off and while I was in academic anesthesia and publishing, I decided I was going to go ahead and get an MBA. So I got an MBA in finance and learned about currency flow and arbitrage and backed into where most people graduate from when they graduate with an MBA, they, you know, it took me a little bit longer and I learned those concepts. And then I was able to then apply the broader knowledge of macroeconomics as how it applies to me directly. And then I went into private practice. 
after I did all that 10, 12 years after residency, then I was like, all right, well, now I need to go do private practice. I need, an, I need something new. And so then I started doing hospital-based medicine and private practice. And then I started my own clinics after that. You think that getting you know, the business degree helped you run your practices easier or what, did it make a difference, do you think, had you started your private practice before getting that business degree? It made it easier to talk to other people, but it didn't make it easier as in terms of running the practice. And I have to tell you, I mean, I'm probably the worst person in the world to say this, but I get intrigued by things and I start learning about them. And before I know it, I'm, you know, three wells deep in it. And then I'm like, well, I might as well finish this and learn this. But had I done it in the beginning, I would have skipped a lot of these steps. Had I known then what I know now, I would have totally done this differently. I would have probably done business school or some variant of B school. You don't have to, you, nobody cares if you have an MBA. You don't walk around with a superhero badge on your, on your left chest going, I have an MBA and an MD. No, they don't really care. It's, it's irrelevant. What they want to know is, do you have the capacity to think? Do you have the capacity to make decisions? And are those decisions appropriate? Now, the thing is, most people make decisions. They make their decisions emotionally, and then they use rationalization to justify their decision. And people with MBAs just can justify their rationalizations better. But that doesn't mean their decisions are any better. So right. once you have an emotional set that tells you what the correct answer sets are, certainly the MBA helps you justify that. But had I done it over, I would have probably skipped a few steps. I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy every part of what I did. But if I was trying to be more business oriented, I would have gone to that directly. Hell, I might not have even gone to medical school. I might have just jumped straight in and said, you know, I'm going to do this. And I don't think that formalized education is as much as we think it should be. I don't think it's in reality as big, as important as it should be. Now, certainly you need formalized education to be a doctor because we license people out. We want them to do well. Well, you have to know human anatomy and you have to be, have an aptitude for science and math and, and those things. Yeah. You know, for certain, especially, I mean, absolutely. in your case, anesthesia, I mean, you, you have to calculate body weight. and. Yeah, absolutely. But as in terms of the applicability of all that to real estate, I think it gives you concepts. It allows you to have discussions with bankers. It allows you to have a, a better understanding, but it doesn't necessarily improve your outcome with, you know, the extra couple letters behind your name. If you make goofball decisions, you still make goofball decisions, no matter how many letters you have behind your name. No, I totally agree. Well, I want to spend some time on this interview with regard to you know, the path of passive wealth strategies that you try to educate physicians on. But I just want to spend a minute on your, the real estate of your specific practices. But before we get into that, so how did you decide which medical specialty you wanted to pursue? How did that come about? So I am an adrenaline junkie. I've always been an adrenaline junkie and I have horrendous ADD. And so I had to figure out how to channel my energy. My mother would actually, when I was a little kid, buy things that I could break. She would literally go to garage sales, find stuff that she could get for a buck and then give it to me so I could take it apart and try to put it back together again. And so, you know, when you got horrendous ADD, you got to figure out how to channel it. 
And so I went into what I thought was going to be really cool, which was going to be trauma surgery, because I love the concept of the, the speed of decision. And I love the algorithm. And I loved like that, that just sudden panic. And then the calmness that overcomes you when you, when everything becomes clear. I love being in that focus phase. And so that's why I went into that. But then I liked, I liked the mechanics of that, but I liked the chemistry, the cerebral aspect of anesthesia. And then I went into interventional pain because it had both. And then as I got a little bit older and my brain calmed down a little bit, as I increased my omega-3 ratios and, and my brain started to, to myelinate a little bit better and I started to think longer term, I was able to think of why patients were as sick as they were. And that's what got me into reversing diabetes and addiction. And it gave me an opportunity to spend a lot of time thinking about epidemiology and thinking about health as, as a global sense. So it started from a hyperphrenetic phase all the way through understanding myself and then understanding the population in general. As I transitioned over to that population in general, my macroeconomics really kicked in. And then I was able to see how capital flowed across the world and how that capital flow impacts our health. And then leveraging on capital flow, I was able to see how that impacts the markets domestically. Right now, you're seeing these huge bubbles in cryptocurrency. You're seeing huge bubbles in the stock market. You're seeing things going upside down, right side up. I monitor that because I used to be in arbitrage. And so, you know, I'm monitoring those kind of things just to have a better understanding constantly. Uh, you know, what's, what's the Federal Reserve going to do? What's, what's going on with DXY? What's going on with the valuation of our dollar? How does the change in, in anticipated Biden's tax reform, how does that change the real estate market? How does it change the stock market? All of those things are relevant. And so I try to keep abreast of the macroeconomics, but then recognize that everything I do is done at a micro level. Real estate is a hyper, hyper micro investment. It's not even an investment in a state or a city, a neighborhood. It's an investment in a particular project on one side of the street and what's behind you in the alley and what's immediately in front of you. And how that particular micro investment works out makes all the difference. And it's so hyper that it may be determined by your tenants, maybe determined by individual tenants and the behavior of the tenants and the quality of your tenants. And so you have to go from a big macro picture of this global world down to that very, very micro. You have to recognize the macro picture impacts your future in a huge way. To give you a simple example, if they get rid of the 1031 exchange, that's going to significantly reduce the number of people flipping properties because then they can't carry over their profits to their next property without paying taxes on it. That'll be a 40% reduction in net cash. And that's going to significantly reduce people trying to sell their property. Yeah. So it'll, it'll, it'll bring construction to a grinding halt. Same thing with some of the other macro changes. Once you recognize macro changes, then you can apply it to your local environment. Yeah. No, real estate is full of a variety of disciplines to make a successful project for sure. So in your locations, do you own those? Do you own all of the locations where you have your practice? Yeah. We've only had one location we've released, and that's because we were purchasing an asset, a business. It was a medical practice. And I, I think we also just recently purchased a shoe manufacturing plant. And so I think those are the two, only two assets that were leased, but were in the process. As soon as we acquire something and it's leased, 
we quickly within the next year move it to a location that we own. We want to generate that revenue and hold that revenue internal. There's always a, a funny thing about, you know, how does your dentist get rich? Well, he buys his building. And 25 years later, when he retires, he's got a forced savings plan of a million and a half, two million dollars. I think that a lot of medical physicians don't recognize that. The dental industry recognized that a long time ago. But medical physicians, for some odd reason, think that it's okay to throw 35 bucks a square foot into, into lease cost per, per year. And it doesn't even make sense. If you really look at it, they're not getting the benefit of the depreciation. They're not getting the benefit of the appreciation. They're not getting any leverage. And they're making somebody else like me who owns real estate more money. No, yeah. And some of that, you know, some of them need to be located near a hospital. And those are usually developers have purchased the land and, and such. But with your locations, you're talking about the macro and micro. So when you were looking at where you were locating them, did it, you have any parameters that? were must-haves for you? Yeah, I located them based on where the patients were going to be. And so hospitals want to be in nice locations. They want to be the ivory tower. They want to be the place that's a destination. But that's not where the patients live. You want to be where the patients are that's easy for the patient to get to. You know, it has adequate public transportation. It has a high density of patients. And so you may not want to be in a class A area. You may be one, you don't also don't want to be in a war zone, although we put in clinics in war zones, but you know, you want to be in a B or C location and you want to have adequate parking. You have to approach it from the patient perspective. Where does the patient want to go? So you almost are looking at more at retail stuff rather than anything else. So, and this is a historic opportunity to buy retail real estate right now. When something goes up, something else invariably goes down. What's, what's gone down during the pandemic is retail real estate because people think, oh, it's never coming back. And I have to tell you that everything is cyclical. And when people have excessive fear, that's when prices are really low. And that gives you a margin of safety to buy that thing. When, they have, when everybody wants to buy a particular asset group, your prices are probably too high. Right now, everybody wants to buy multifamily. Multifamily, I was and, just gonna say. <laughs> and multifamily is hot and it keeps getting hotter. And unfortunately, it's gotten so hot that the rates of return for, you know, which we measure as a cap rate are for a lot of places, for class B or A, those cap rates are down to 4%. Well, when the interest rate is, gets to 4%, you're in trouble. Because right. if your interest rate is the same as your cap rate, you're screwed. You can't make any money. And you have to maintain at least a couple point difference between the cap rate and the interest rate. Yeah. And it's interesting what you say about retail, because a lot of healthcare companies that have been interviewed by the healthcare real estate industry on the financial side, you know, they've said, hey, you know, come up with something new and different for us. And that is a little bit more, you know, because some practices like dialysis on oncology, you know, can't necessarily doesn't make sense to put near a movie theater. But, you know, some of the other practices that, you know, see people either for health and wellness or, you know, make sense in a to be co-located with other things that you're doing, like, you know, I want to go to the target and then I, you know, and then, you know, I'll go and go get my well check and then, you know, I'll go and see a movie. I mean, that can all be done in one area. And so a lot of the healthcare practices that do that are saying, Hey, you know, come up with something creative like that for us. Cause again, we want to be easily accessible to our patients. We want to be convenient for patients. We don't want patients sitting in our waiting room, you know, and, and we want, you want it to be 
less of a, like, oh, you're going to the doctor atmosphere, but hey, I need to go and get my well check. And then, you know, I need to do my other things in life. Yeah. I mean, my ideal circumstance when I, I've, cause I've actually, this is one of the projects I'm working on right now. We are co-locating next to B grade grocery stores. So the Aldi's of the world, the grocery stores that are not like super high tier. If you wanted to be high tier, I wouldn't locate next to Whole Foods. I would locate next to Trader Joe's if you want to be at that higher end. But what you want to do is you know that these people are going to go to their grocery store at least once a week, maybe every other week. It's not going to be difficult for them to see somebody in a clinic setting every couple weeks or once a month or once every other month. If they're getting dialysis, you, you already know what their socioeconomic class is. You already know that they likely have diabetes. You already know the population that you're dealing with. So then figure out where to go to the grocery store and then buy that retail center because then, and then put a dialysis center there, put in a total, put in an urgent care center there. You know, you know that there's a comorbidity of cancer. You know that you're going to have GI dysfunction. Maybe you put in a surgical center there. Maybe put an ASC in. There's a whole host of peripherals that you can base off of people's behavior. And so that's first, you have to build that avatar in your head. Who is this customer that I'm trying to attract and where are they going to be? I'm not going to attract this customer that has renal dialysis three times a week, who is unemployed because they, they have renal dialysis three times a week. I'm not going to attract that customer in a class A high rise in a hospital. They don't want to go to the hospital. They're afraid of the hospital. They might get COVID there. And so, and so they're trying to avoid these things. And so we, we, I put myself in the shoes of that customer every time and ask myself, what is the experiential nature of what they're trying to achieve? I didn't come up with this on my own. I mean, obviously, but that's, that's how it worked. I got more of this. We opened up probably five restaurants. We have a restaurant division. We sold the entire restaurant division literally in one week in October of 2019. Oh my gosh, Literally, how well did you time that? <laughs> there, were, there were like, for us, there were some changes that we were looking at. We were looking at the repo market and the repo market was crashing. So we knew that the crash was coming in the US economy. The US economy actually crashed in October, November of 2019. We got COVID in the US. The first cases were probably in January, February that we knew. Yeah, and then by yeah. March, we shut down. But the repo market crashed first. It crashed in October. And that's what we were paying attention to. We didn't know anything about any of this other stuff coming, but we're like, well, if the repo market crashes, that means that there's a liquidity event that's going to happen six months to a year from now. We don't want to be in a retail business selling food if we don't know what's going to happen. So we better sell our restaurants. And so we had started the restaurants after the previous crash, 2009, 2010 is when we started them. We sold them in 2019 because everything goes in cycles. Everything right. is cyclical. So you want to exit before everybody else is running for the exits. You want to be out before that happens. Otherwise, you lose money. This is the optimum time to go into the restaurant business right now because there's so much vacant space. So right. if you think you wanted to become a restaurant tour, this is ideal because you can buy assets for five cents on the dollar right now. And 35 to 50% of all restaurants are closed. In some places, 80%. And so if I was a restaurant tour again, I would go into the business today. Well, I live in Arizona and... The restaurants are in full swing here to the point where you have to book a reservation a couple of weeks out for the good ones. I mean, it's, it, I find it interesting. And I talk to people in other parts of the country and they're still in lockdown. And so it's, it's an interesting time here in Arizona. <laughs> yeah. 
I have access to the numbers from the restaurants that we sold, and we had positioned them very well when they, when we sold to them, and they managed to do very well through this because we had already put in systems for home delivery for all of them. Oh, um, we sold five of them, and we had already we'd systematized it, made sure it worked, and then I just looked at their numbers like literally yesterday. They are fifty percent higher because other restaurants closed. They're fifty percent right. higher sales volume here than they were before COVID. Yeah. And so they actually are, are hitting numbers like I've never seen because That's the other demand. restaurant, the other, the other supply disappeared. Yeah, crazy. Well, transitioning into the investment side. So you, you're very passionate about educating clinicians on creating passive cash flow and equity growth. And one of your comments is that you state that many physicians die broke. So why is educating your clinician peers on financial education and passive wealth opportunities so important to you? Yeah, because I've seen it firsthand. I've I've seen physicians that are just amazing. I mean, they're the best clinicians on earth and they take care of patients that are really, really sick and they spend their entire lives doing this. And at the end of the day, they die broke. They die just like everybody else. They run out of money. They actually die broker faster because their expenses in the first place are high and they think that they're always going to have that income for the rest of their lives. And it disappears the day they quit working. See, the thing is, physicians, they work and they get paid, but they don't, they don't have any passive income. And as long as they work, they get paid and they get paid very well, but they don't have any passive income. And they typically listen to people that appeal to them. And what I mean by that is that, and, and this is going to be a negative thing, but this is, it's true. Physicians, by their very nature, are narcissistic. We have to assume that what we are doing is correct. And with that comes a little bit of narcissism. Everybody that assumes that what they're having to do is correct is at some point or another going to believe in themselves more than they should. And if that's the case, then they, they behave in a way that's narcissistic. Now, people that are predators prey on narcissism. You know, if you're a good salesperson and you can identify who's somebody who's narcissistic, it is really easy to get them to do what you want them to do because you just keep complimenting them. And you tell them how smart they are. And before you know it, they're doing what you told them to do because you complimented them. And so physicians fall prey to that because they, they don't recognize they're narcissistic a little bit. And the salespeople keep complimenting them. That's why we have sales reps. They come into your office and they keep complimenting what a great, beautiful office and what a great job you're doing. And they get you to do whatever they want you to do. And unfortunately, that's just the reality of becoming a physician. Now, when you get complimented and you're making decisions based upon what somebody else tells you, if you go into the stock market, most likely you're going to go into funds because you're not going to pick your own stocks because you weren't educated in it. And so you're going to pick funds based upon what somebody tells you. Most funds charge 2% annual just on the money that's holding there. And they charge 20% on the actual profit that they make. But no matter what, they're going to charge you 2%. And if you look at most of the stock market investment in funds, it doesn't get above the S&P 500 for the vast majority of funds. Now, there are exceptions, obviously, but those are unique. But the vast majority of funds, probably over 85% of them, when you take out the fees, underperform the S&P 500. And you don't get any tax benefits. And those investments are capital investments, and they rarely will pay dividends long-term. So they work by appreciation rather than cash flow. And so physicians need to understand the concept of cash flow and that you need a constant revenue stream that you don't have to live off of the principal, 
that you this revenue stream comes to you just like your salary does, but without you working. And so that's what got me interested was because I was trying to help other physicians. And I realized that there was just a disconnect between that understanding of cash flow and an income and capital appreciation. I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.